0: But will the strange letters attached to the case received after they went missing be the vital clue investigators need to solve these mysteries? This episode on Mysteriously Listed. Number 5. Gladys Kidd. 71-year-old Gladys Kidd was a beloved grandmother who had recently sold her farm in Rowan County, Kentucky. In early August 1990, she went into the People's First Bank to cash a cheque of $56,000, which was the proceeds of the sale of the farm. The cashier tried to give her the money as a cheque, but Gladys insisted that she take the money in cash. The last time she was seen was August 6th, 1990. Police searched her home for clues as to her whereabouts, but the only things missing were her clothes and a filing cabinet. Her car would later be found in town, with the keys locked inside. Seventeen days after she was last seen, a letter was received by family members. The letter was postmarked Lexington, Kentucky, and was supposedly written by Gladys. The letter instructed her family not to look for her, and that she would be just forced to run away again if they found her and forced her to come home. And while this letter does suggest that Gladys left on her own volition, it cannot be ruled out that she did not write the letter willingly, and that is what her family believes, that she was a victim of foul play. The family's theory is that Gladys was murdered, and that stems from her mysterious boyfriend of several years. Gladys openly spoke about him to her family, but would never reveal his identity. She stated that he was known to them, and they would be surprised once they found out who he was. He refused to speak to anyone on the phone besides Gladys, and her family are unaware of who he is to this day. Further supporting the theory she was murdered, When Gladys disappeared, she stopped collecting her social security checks, and her driver's license expired and was never renewed. If she did go missing on her own volition, and since she left her car behind, someone would have had to have driven her. And since no one else from the small town went missing, she clearly did not run off with her boyfriend to start a new life. At the time of her disappearance, Gladys Kidd was 5 foot 5 and 140 pounds. She had brown hair, with one brown eye and one green eye. She wore prescription eyeglasses. If Gladys was still alive today, she would be 100 years old. Based on that, it is unlikely she is still alive. And since her family believes she met with foul play... They are still desperately searching for answers, so they may bring her killer to justice. Number 4. Samuel Lottery Samuel Lottery was not your typical teenager. He was extraordinary. The 17-year-old was incredibly intelligent, especially with electronics, he was a popular student at H.B. Beale Secondary School in London, Ontario. He was a naturally gifted athlete, and he loved to rap along with his favourite hip-hop artists. On January 18, 1996, Samuel did not return home from school. This was unusual for the family oriented teenager – so they didn't wait long before the lotteries called the police. Unfortunately, numerous searches turned up no trace of Samuel or his whereabouts. A little over a month after he disappeared, Samuel's family started receiving letters. The letters teased as to where the family could locate his body. In March 1996, A handwritten letter on unique stationery was found at a church where the family attended, the Pillar of Fire Church, and while the contents of the letter have never been released, what is known is that it said that Samuel's body could allegedly be found by the Thames River, and that the letter had a photograph of Samuel and that with the letter was a photograph that Samuel had in his wallet at the time he disappeared. Police searched the area extensively, but could not find any evidence that his remains were there. Six months later, a second letter was received, this time at the Lottery home. The letter allegedly stated the same information and was on the same unique stationery. The letter said that Samuel was dead and his remains could be found by the Thames River. Investigators believed the fact the letter was sent to the lottery home, then this indicated the killer knew Samuel and his family. Only 16 months later, in May 1997, a man out walking his dog found an arm bone along the Thames River near Blackfriars Bridge. Despite this area being searched numerous times over the previous year, more bones would eventually be found. And then finally, in April 2008, 11 years after Samuel was last seen, a human skull was discovered on the bank of the Thames River, near Greenway Park. And almost 14 years after Samuel went missing... Forensics would confirm the remains did belong to Samuel Lottery. And the missing persons case was reclassified as a homicide investigation. The case remains active. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. Tom Roche was a man who seemingly had everything going for him. The 37-year-old had secured a high-level management position with a company that plated aircraft parts. He had a long-term girlfriend, Barbara, who he was madly in love with. And he had his Harley Davidson, which was his most prized possession. And despite his love of motorcycles and biker bars and strip clubs, he didn't have a criminal record and he didn't use drugs. He was focused on his work and his family and his girlfriend. On September 13, 1991, Tom drove Barbara to work and they made plans to meet at midday for lunch. He excitedly spoke about his plans to install a new battery in his Harley later that morning. But Tom never showed for their date, and by the time Barbara arrived home from work, about 5.30, she found the front door unlocked and the newspaper unopened on the kitchen bench, along with the motorcycle battery that he was looking forward on working on that morning. However, everything else seemed to suggest that he hadn't planned on leaving, the answering machine was off and that was something Tom would only do if he was going to be home. And his beloved Harley Davison, it was still parked in the same parking spot it always was. When Tom didn't come home that night, Barbara reported him missing to police. The police waited a few days before looking into the disappearance because they thought that Tom would arrive home. Because they thought that Tom would return home. His family knew this was a mistake, as he would not leave his family without telling them, and he definitely wouldn't have left his Harley behind. During the police's investigation, they discovered that Tom had made two deposits into his bank account soon after dropping Barbara at work, at around eight twenty a.m., the fact he deposited and didn't withdraw money, this supported the theory that Tom did not leave town willingly. Several eyewitnesses would come forward stating they had seen Tom on the day of his disappearance and in the days that followed. A neighbor claimed to have seen Tom talking to an unidentified man mid-morning around nine thirty. The neighbour stated there was nothing to be alarmed of, that Tom seemed at ease and seemed to be having a normal conversation with the men. And then, an employee of the motorcycle parts store that Tom frequented, he claimed to have seen Tom the day after he disappeared, and that he was acting strangely. This was not the usual interaction he would have with Tom – Tom enjoyed joking around, but on this day he was more withdrawn and didn't want to converse. Police dismissed this sighting and have publicly stated that they believe this was simply a case of the witness confusing his dates. They believe this interaction occurred in the days before he disappeared when Tom purchased the motorcycle battery. Six days after his disappearance, a typed letter arrived at Tom and Barbara's apartment. It was addressed to the family of Tom Roche. It contained Tom's driver's license and an earring he was wearing the day he was last seen. It read, I am suffering a great deal of guilt right now about what I have done and I feel it is necessary to write about it for my sake and yours. You don't know me, and hopefully never will, but I am the one who killed Tom Roche. I cannot and will not go to jail. I could never handle it. I almost lost my mind, never again. I loved being in Vietnam. In fact, those were the happiest days of my life. I felt such a rush whenever I had a confirmed kill that it was hard to switch it off when I came back to the States. For 18 long years, I have held this in check, despite my nightmares and fantasies about killing. This Jeffrey Beamer thing really got to me, and I wondered if I could still do it. I figured LA would be the best place for what I had in mind. I did not just want a random thing cause you can get caught that way, so I set up a plan. I met Tom at a strip joint in the valley and got to talking. He fell for it and we arranged to meet on Friday the 13th. I must assure you that it was neat and quick. I do not think he suffered at all. I am very sorry for what I have done, and I know in time that the guilt will leave me. So will your pain. The author's plan was successful because he has never been identified. Police believe the author was referencing the now infamous Milwaukee serial killer, Jeffrey Dahmer. Dahmer was arrested only two months before Tom went missing, and the upcoming trial dominated the news. It wouldn't be until after the letter was received that the police took Tom's disappearance seriously. On January 11, 1992, four months after Tom vanished, bone fragments were found in Placer County, California, 500 miles from Tom's apartment in Burbank. DNA tests confirmed that the remains belonged to Tom Roche. The cause of death being due to a single gunshot. Personal belongings were also found belonging to Tom. A duffel bag, flashlight, hunting knife, two pairs of prescription eyeglasses, an empty prescription medicine bottle and several shirts. All of which suggested that Tom had packed for a trip. The unanswered question that haunts investigators and Tom's loved ones was, where was he headed, and with whom? Unfortunately, finding Tom's body has not led the police any closer to finding his killer, and at the time of this recording, they have not publicly named any suspects in his murder case. Number 2. Gaelic Rainwalker 12-year-old Gaelic Rainwalker had a difficult start to life. He was known as a child of the system, living in six different foster homes after being placed into the system as a baby when he was born addicted to crack cocaine. During early childhood, he developed behavioural problems he would have violent temper tantrums which could last for up to an hour, and he would often frighten other children. At the age of seven, he would attack another foster child, and this contributed to the lack of stability and going from foster home to foster home. According to his adoptive family, Gaelic was also suicidal and homicidal in the period before he disappeared, and despite their claims of the contrary, it has been claimed he was not taking any drugs to help him manage his condition, and he wasn't receiving psychotherapy. At the time of his disappearance, Gaelic was in the care of Stephen Kerr and Jocelyn MacDonald, and they had legally adopted Gaelic. He had lived with this family for five years in 2007 in Greenwich Village, New York, alongside the family's three biological sons and an adoptive daughter. The family had what could only be called an unconventional lifestyle. They had no running water, no indoor bathrooms, and they only allowed electricity usage for a few hours a day. They all slept in the same room. The family would cite environmental conservation as the reasoning behind their lifestyle choices. The children were also homeschooled. October 23rd, 2007, Kerr called a crisis hotline and stated he wanted to reverse the adoption. He claimed Gaelic was out of control and he had threatened a small child in the homeschool group they were in. The crisis worker told Kerr that a reverse adoption was not possible and instead offered respite care with a family he had previously stayed with, Elaine and Tom Pearson. November 1, 2007, Gaelic returned home to Kerr MacDonald from his parental grandparents' home. The family went to dinner together and then arrived back home around 8pm and Gaelic went to bed. Kerr woke around 7.30 the following morning to find his bed stuffed with clothes and pillows to make it look like he was in there, but obviously wasn't. A note allegedly written by Gaelic was found on the kitchen table. Dear everyone, I am sorry for everything. I won't be a bother anymore. Goodbye, Gaelic. Kerr would allegedly not report Gaelic missing for an hour and a half, and when police arrived, he told them that most of Gaelic's belongings were missing – But when police searched the house, they found these belongings in the garage. A duffel bag filled with his clothes and a stuffed animal. Police would take this disappearance seriously, and extensively searched the rural area, but could not find Gaelic or any evidence of his whereabouts. As Gaelic spent the days before his disappearance with the family the Pearsons were interviewed about Gaelic's behaviour, leading up to him going missing. They stated they didn't believe Gaelic planned to run away, and this was not a goodbye note. They stated that Kerr assigned Gaelic homework to write such a letter to apologise for his recent behaviour. In January 2008, Kerr was named a person of interest due to the inconsistencies in his story. Police obtained video surveillance footage of Kerr driving his van in Greenwich after midnight on the night Gaelic disappeared. In his official statement to police, however, he claimed that was when he was asleep. Phone records also indicated that Kerr was out that night. Later that same month, a letter was received at the Kerr MacDonald home. It read, Gaelic still alive, needed a foot soldier for this war on drugs. Picked him up Route 40 Post 30. He's okay, no fake. He says, asks his mother and papa, who are the Macaroni family? My cat named Diamond. Why does Franty yell fire? Don't try to look. We are not there. Now, Gaelic did own a cat named Diamond, and there are apparently more references in the letter that have not been released to the public. The police appealed for the author to come forward, but they never did. The family computer was detained to see if the note was written on their computer, but. It seems nothing came from the search. Gaelic's maternal grandmother, Barbara Reilly, was later arrested for breaking into the home of MacDonald. After her arrest, the police searched the home again themselves and seized a yellow fleece jacket that Gaelic was allegedly wearing when he was last seen. Barbara would also claim that Kerr had an anger management problem and would often kick McDonald and herself out of the home. She would also claim that earlier, in 2007, she saw Kerr physically attack Gaelic. McDonald passed a polygraph, but Kerr refused to take one. However, I would too, considering he was a person of interest in an active case – and polygraphs are notoriously unreliable. I would not consider this to be an admission of guilt on its own. MacDonald and Kerr now live in West Rupert, Vermont. They believe Gaelic went to live with an African American family. Gaelic was biracial, but identified as African American, and they believe he wanted to explore more of that side of his heritage. Investigators have found no evidence this is the case and strongly believe foul play was involved in his disappearance. At the time of his disappearance, Gaelic Rainwalker was 5 foot 6 and 105 pounds. He had light brown hair and green eyes. He was biracial. He was last seen wearing a bright yellow fleece pullover and a grey t-shirt with a dragon on the front blue jeans and black canvas high-top sneakers. At the time of his disappearance, Gaelic had a slight speech impediment that caused him to pronounce the letter R as a W. If Gaelic is still alive today, he would be 25 years old. Number 1. Josephine Despard In 1984, 26-year-old Josephine Despard was going through a transitional time of her life. She had recently separated from her husband and had moved to Olean, New York, to live with her mother, who she was extremely close to. Josephine wasn't working, but was taking classes at Jonestown Community College. Her daughter Lois was six years old. Josephine's sister Eileen was caring for her in Ohio while she got settled in New York. Eileen would officially adopt Lois after Josephine's disappearance. Around 5pm on February 7th, 1984, two accounts have been reported in contemporary news articles. Either Josephine left her mother's house to meet a male acquaintance headed to the Frankenville area to exchange stereo equipment. The other account is Josephine and her male acquaintance left her mother's house together. Regardless, this was her last known movements. This male acquaintance was a classmate of Josephine's. He would later tell investigators their plans changed on the way to their final destination. Instead, they went for coffee, and around 6pm, she saw some other friends and left with them. This was the last time he allegedly saw her. The male acquaintance did nothing to squash the police's suspicions of him either. Right after Josephine's disappearance, He reportedly tried to flee the country, but was stopped at the Canadian border and charged with a parole violation and possession of marijuana. He was then sent back to the United States. The male acquaintance remained a person of interest until his suicide in October of 1984. There have been reports eyewitnesses saw Josephine later on the evening she disappeared, at the Perkins restaurant in O'Lean with a group of unidentified men. Perkins did not have security cameras in 1984, and therefore this sighting could not be confirmed. Another sighting placed Josephine with the same group of men leaving the disco club in O'Lean. Josephine's case had very few leads to follow, and the case went cold. This all changed on February 7th, 2018, the 34th anniversary of her disappearance. An anonymous letter arrived at the Olean Police Department. The contents of the letter have never been released out of concerns it would jeopardise an ongoing investigation. But it allegedly mentioned information known to the police that was never released to the public but it also does suggest that three individuals may be involved in Josephine's disappearance. In an effort to get the author of the letter to come forward, the Olean Police Department posted an appeal on their official Facebook page and through the local news outlets. And while the police wanted to speak to the author of the letter, it was made clear that this person was not a suspect and the letter does not implicate the author in any way. Josephine's family are aware that, after 36 years, it is most likely she is no longer alive. They would, however, like to locate her body so they may have some closure, and have a funeral to bury her next to her beloved mother. At the time of her disappearance, Josephine Despard was 5 foot 2 and 102 pounds. She was last seen wearing a beige sweater with blue jeans and brown knee-high boots, and a red jacket with a hood. If Josephine was still alive today, she would be 61 years old. Do you have something you would like to see mysteriously listed? Do you have a particular theme that interests you? Message us on Facebook at Mysteriously Listed and on Twitter at Mysterious List. If you like what you've heard today, we would love for you to share this episode on your social media of choice. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, we would appreciate it if you could leave a positive review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Research, additional writing and hosting is by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu.